Hello and welcome to the first episode of New Narrative's Southeast Asia Dispatches. I'm your host, PJ Thum. This fortnightly podcast series brings you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this week's episode, we profile a Myanmar NGO on a mission to educate some of the country's child laborers. We look at Cambodia's new and possibly politicized rail network. We interview an academic who worked as a bar hostess in Ho Chi Minh City. And we hear from one of our editors about reporting on grief as a journalist. Child labour is widespread in Myanmar with little effort from the government to curb the issue. In lieu of government intervention, several NGOs have begun to provide child labourers free informal education with the hope of providing an avenue to escape generational poverty. Victoria Milko visits these mobile classrooms in Yangon. On any given day in Myanmar, almost one and a quarter million child laborers will be found out in the streets, serving cups of milky sweet tea at the local corner shop, sweeping the floors of apartment buildings, collecting bags of waste from people's homes, and undertaking countless other forms of low-skilled work. When Myanmar transitioned from a military junta to a quasi-civilian government, the economy boomed. The sudden increase in labor demand caused several business sectors to turn to children who were often the cheapest workforce on offer. All of this for as little as $15 a week, which is often expected to be sent back to families in rural, poverty-stricken areas. Most of them came from very poor family. The family economic crisis are very barrier for their education access. So thus, they had to work for their family income. That's Da A. A. Thin, a staff member of Hope for Shining Stars, a small NGO that works to provide educational opportunities for young people from poor backgrounds in Myanmar. They miss the education access in formal education channel. So without any education for their children, how they will develop and how they will grow, we can imagine. So education uh, doesn't mean literacy or university lesson. So knowledge, uh, skills and attitudes to this in the society. How should they grown up in the society? How should they care to others? How should they sim- have uh, some sympathetic, you know, uh, to be sympathetic to others, something like that. Everything they need to know and they need to practice in their life. So without education, they cannot imagine such thought. Stricter laws have been passed since Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy took power. Children younger than 16 are now no longer allowed to work full-time, and children under 14 years aren't allowed to work in factories. But enforcement is lax, and many of the country's businesses still heavily rely on child laborers. And the problem, A.A. Thin says, only seems to be getting worse. We cannot know exactly the child labor, the detail of child labor, but uh, we can see in every, everywhere, everywhere, the, the number of child labor became increased. In response, a small group of NGOs have taken the issue into their own hands. Their first initiative? Delivering education, you know, creating this 
fun and loving and also learning environment. That's Tim A. Hardy, the founder of the Myanmar Mobile Education Project, called MyMe for short, which aims to help provide informal education to child laborers throughout the country. After living in the United States for 25 years, A. Hardy returned to his native home of Myanmar and quickly noticed a drastic increase in the number of child laborers in Yangon. But for me, it's like coming f- back from the you know, U.S. and the process. Like, first thing I noticed, like, wow, something's wrong already. These are the kids that should be in school. This is school age. Right? Then I'm very curious. I start talking to them, asking them questions, and I realize, wow, this is pretty much effed up. Right? And then we got to do something about it. So that's how it came. A. Hardy, who had been working in the technology sector in New York, began to brainstorm, eventually coming up with the concept that would, literally, drive my me. So the idea was, like, how can we bring classroom school to them? That was the first question. So that question led to, why don't we just build a classroom? Why don't we just build a classroom that can move, can go where they are? How do we do that? We have old beat up buses, trucks, and then make them look like classroom. We put like desk and chair and then whiteboard and then we even put the solar panel on the top. Then we just go around. So that was, that was pretty much it. A. Hardy went back to the United States and began crowdfunding. Soon after, the first Miami classrooms were rolling through Yangon streets, picking up children after their work shifts. In the makeshift classroom, children sit at wooden desks, having lessons in subjects such as math, basic English, and reading. Other lessons include interactive activities, teaching skills such as teamwork, communication, and personal hygiene. But A. Hardy admits the Miami classroom is no substitute for a formal education, and retaining students can be difficult. So evening time when the shops are closed, imagine that these young you know, children and youth working 12, 13, 14 hours already since 4 or 5 a.m. By the time the shops are closed, like 5, 6 p.m., that's when they just take a quick showers and then you know, get ready for my me classes. It's really challenging for them, and then also it's really challenging for our teachers as well. For them to go to teach like a 6, 7 p.m. night, it's something that... It's not easy. Despite these struggles, Miami has had over 10,000 students participate in their courses and has expanded to three other cities across Myanmar. But while Miami and a handful of other organizations are doing what they can, A. Hardy says the task of solving the child labor issue in Myanmar is ultimately the duty of one group. Right, Miami Project alone cannot solve this like 2.7 million out of school children in this country, uh, solve them or bring them back to the school or give them some sort of education. We can't do it. This is the government's uh, responsibility, government's job. So what we're doing is highlighting the issue, making them visible, making people understand that, hey, look at these kids. Look at where they are. Look at what they're missing. Look at what we can do for them. And then also be mindful that if we are rebuilding a country or society and a community, we cannot leave these kids alone. Without these children, millions of children out there, what the hell are we going to do in the future? That was Victoria Milko in Yangon. Cambodia's Northern Railway Line reopened last month, timed just weeks ahead of the country's national election. The opening raised questions not only because of its timing, but also doubts as to its impact on the national infrastructure. 
Mark Tilly takes a ride through the heart of Cambodia and checks out the country's transport network. It's 6am at the central railway station of the Cambodian capital Phnom Penh. The Art Deco structure is a flurry of activity, with families pulling luggage onto carriages, motorbikes being loaded onto freight cars, and staff scurrying across the platforms. Two years ago, the Southern Line was reopened for passenger services, running from Phnom Penh to the southern coastal city of Sihanoukville. Last month, the Northern Line was reopened after falling into disrepair for over a decade, and people were excited to be among the first to try it. It reduces traffic jams and accidents, and you don't have to compete with the other cars. For Cambodian people right now, they're not yet so interested in, in uh, getting on a train, uh, because it takes so long time. Apart from the congestion, safety is also one of the primary reasons people would opt for the newly opened rail service. It's not hard to see why. According to the Ministry of Interior, last year around 1,800 people died on Cambodian roads, where laws are rarely followed or enforced. At 6.30, a horn sounds from the diesel locomotive. All thoughts of the road vanish as we are whisked away on the 386km journey to Poi Pet on the Thai-Cambodia border. The scenery during the trip is mesmerising. The Cardamon Mountains roll past us as we soak in the views at the very leisurely pace of 35 kilometers per hour. I get the impression that we're in for a long journey. I think right now uh, investment in public transportation, water, taxi, bus, railways, just on the surface. They are not really taking their hearts and their mind to do this work. They just want to make it to make the people feel that they are now uh, doing something. That's Charia Ear from Cambodia's Institute of Road Safety. He believes the timing of the Northern Line's reopening, five months ahead of schedule, was planned to gain support ahead of this year's general election. I think uh, the leader might take this kind of the political benefits uh, because before election they want to show off the uh, achievements and their new products to the people to attract their support. John Gurry, CEO of Royal Railways, the company which operates Cambodia's rail services, disagrees. He says the opening was brought forward to bring in freight revenue thanks to the line's lucrative connection with the Thai border. People have said to me, oh, it's only done for the election, but it's not. It's, that's not quite, that's not true. The, the real rationale behind it was to stop the hemorrhaging of funds for the government and to get the, the Northern Line open so we can start the next part of the business. So we're very keen to push the government and push anyone we can to get to running the North and South Line so you have a, a proper business case and then you can start investment. Charia Ear says investment in public transport now is crucial given road vehicle registrations are increasing by 30% per year, a rate the government cannot keep up with. In just next uh, four or five years, the vehicle uh, registration will be double, and our road cannot be double. At this stage, is it's a little bit late, but it's still a good timing for making public uh, investment on transportation. Thirteen and a half hours later, our train pulls into Cambodia's westernmost city, Battambang. Estimating it would take another three hours to get to the end of the line, we disembark. 
It's clear there is room for improvement, and John Gurry agrees. I have so many things that I'd like to do, I, I won't get them all done in my lifetime, because this country is, is just asking for someone to come on and, and take it to the next level, and it needs it, and the people of Cambodia um, need the alternative. Since my ride on the Northern Line, Hun Sen's party has sailed to victory in the election. But fixing the country's transport network will still be a challenge for this new one-party state. That report was brought to you by Mark Tilly and Sinyat Yon in Phnom Penh. Many academics try to immerse themselves in their research. Kimberly K. Huang took it one step further. As part of the research for her book, which took over five years, Kimberly lived in Ho Chi Minh City and worked at four hostess bars for different periods of time. She's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, and she sought to better understand the interaction between Vietnam's economic rise and its sex industry. Her book is called Dealing with Desire, Asian Ascendancy, Western Decline, and the Hidden Currencies of Global Sex Work. It was released in 2015. Michael Tataski sat down with Kimberly to talk about her experiences of working in Ho Chi Minh City's hostess bars. Kimberly K. Huang, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Your first book uh, called Dealing and Desire. Do you want to talk a little bit about the background of the book? Sure. So the book is uh, largely oriented around this larger question, which is what is the relationship between the informal economy and formal economy? Mm -hmm. And the informal economy in this case is the sex industry and the formal economy are sort of um, you know, markets. I happened to come in 2009, right after the 2008 financial crisis, right. and many of the men that I had been interviewing, Western men in particular, were men who sort of lost their jobs on Wall Street and ended up in Southeast Asia mm -hmm. after some time. And what you started to see there was this shift in um, what I call sort of Asian ascendancy and Western decline. And mm -hmm. so you have the rise of these rebel cities like Saigon and Hong Kong and Shanghai where that have become sort of new emergent financial centers. It's sort of, there's something I think culturally unique about the region in general where relationships matter a great deal mm -hmm. and where people have less faith in um, contra contracts and agreements. Right. And so it's about the social relationships of trust. Okay. And so then the question is, is where do these people establish relationships of trust or how do they build relationships of trust? Mm -hmm. And what I basically write about in the book is it's through these male bonding rituals that often happen in hostess bars. I mean, kind of behind the book, the research, it, it was on the ground research. You actually worked in four separate bars. You mentioned how you know you kind of arrived not knowing how you were going to get access to these places. So what was it like to try to, you know, get a job in these places? I, I would say from the very beginning, it was quite challenging for a number of reasons. And I think at the beginning, I sort of was naive in how I handled much of it, mm -hmm. frankly. Uh, I was younger and I just approached different bars and motorbike taxi drivers that were out, you know, on the streets at night and mm -hmm. asked them to sort of give me a, you know, lay of the land. Okay. Um, and to be quite frank, people knew that, I mean, I was not really undercover. Everyone knew, knew <laughs> right. what I was doing. Yeah. And that was challenging, except that what happens with ethnography is once you embed yourself in a space, and if you really kind of take the space on, sometimes people forget because mm -hmm. you are like playing a role, mm -hmm. right? Like you're in there doing, if you accept the kind of work. And I think it was a very 
um, humbling experience because I did not have the physical sort of makeup to even to realistically get a job in these bars. Okay. Um, as you know, I was 10 years older than most of the women. I was, you know, short and mm. chubby compared to them and just not physically attractive. And so I had to rely on, on a lot. And I just, you know, it, you go through this physical transformation where you're transforming your entire body. And I think in some ways, it was a project that where I grew into my womanhood, I yeah. guess, if there's a way to describe it, because you're playing with different senses of cells and each bar requires a different look, a different sort of performance of femininity mm-hmm. that I write about in the book. And um, that was challenging. And I sure. think a lot of times people who think about the sex industry tend to think about it in very stereotypical ways. Sure. And, you know, either you associate it with, you know, sex trafficking or human trafficking, which I don't think is sort of as widespread as people think, you know, as it's written about in the media, or they think about sex workers as, you know, whores, mm-hmm. right? And so they're, st- they're stigmatized in very different ways where either you're a victim or you're a vixen, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, and what I was able to sort of get in the middle of, you know, in there is that actually these women are really smart and have a lot of agency and don't think of themselves as victims. Okay. And at the same time, they're not complete vixens either, right? They have emotional attachments and relationships and real feelings and, um, and vulnerabilities. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of subtlety that you learn by embedding yourself in an environment like that. I mean, I will say that I felt very safe. There's a There are moral codes in the bars where yeah. madams and bar owners, at least at the time that I was working, didn't take cuts of the women's earnings from paid sex. Mm-hmm. And there's a logic for that, which is that if you do that, it's bad karma and um, it will sort of repel clients from your bar. Okay. And people were religious, they were Buddhist and, you know, and Catholic, and so, there was kind of like a moral economy that was the bedrock of all of these spaces. Okay. There's a pretty common image in Southeast Asia of, you know, the Western male predator. From what I read, it seemed like kind of the main drivers are Vietnamese or Asian businessmen and then um, uh, VQ, the overseas Vietnamese. Was that something that surprised you or was that kind of expected going Absolutely. In? But the other thing that I would say is surprising in terms of the question of the sexual predators is I also thought that I would be really disgusted by some of the Western men I was around. And, you know, being an Asian American woman and you thinking about all of these stereotypes of relationships between um, Western men and local women, what I was surprised even there, also when you get deep down into the sort of thinking about the human relationships in these spaces, is that very few of the men that I met were sexual predators. It pushed back on my own stereotypes of what kind of Western guy comes to Southeast Asia to purchase sex. And if you kind of think about it more deeply, it's it's really about desire. And this is how I start this is how desire became part of sort of the theoretical hook of the book, which is that people generally just want to feel desired or feel desirable. Okay. And so no one wants to go into a bar and, you know, force someone to to be attracted to them. Like they want to feel attractive. Mm-hmm. And what these women do is they make these men feel attractive in, in many ways. And in that process, what happens is rather than men duping women, there were all of these mechanisms put into place where the women were in fact duping the men. Kind of bringing it to present day, obviously you're not embedded in Vietnam anymore, but has this changed much? And from what you can tell, I mean, obviously in the intervening years, the Western economies have kind of recovered to a sense, but Vietnam in particular is still performing extremely well economically. Instead of 
you know, f- at least for the high end places, there have been, you know, heavier crackdowns on these spaces. And so people have moved more towards indoor venues that are private parties. So mm-hmm. rather than going to a KTV, now you have like a network of people who will show up at a house and it's a private party. And I think the other thing that's been different and quite surprising is the way in which it's been covered in the media. So, you know, um, you see there are like very highly publicized cases of businessmen um, with sex workers. And, you know, then you see all of these photos with them on, you know, all over the web. And before, I think that those things were very private. They were exclusive. The people that were in those networks knew about them, but they were, it was kind of a code. You never would leak those. Mm-hmm. And once those got out into the media, it just took off like a firestorm. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think I remember looking at them and thinking, wow, I can't believe that this isn't, that this is out. Hmm. you know, okay. um, in, in this kind of context. And, and even with my own work, it circulated pretty widely in the media. And so I, I feel like pe- there must be a general public interest in the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just gotten, I mean, I thought at the time I was pushing the boundary and they're really pushing the boundaries, okay. you know? And yeah. so I, I find that to be very, it's, it's a climate that's very different. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, Kimberly, thanks. Thanks very much. We'll keep an eye out for your second book sometime. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course. That was Michael Tataski speaking with Kimberly K. Huang. When a conflict or disaster strikes, it's a journalist's job to get on the ground and bring the story to audiences around the world. But how should reporters balance telling a good story with respecting victims' grief? By chance, Aisha Llewellyn found herself covering an Indonesian ferry disaster which claimed the lives of almost 200 people, where she had to interview the loved ones of those lost. She recounts her experience of trying to make sense of a painful situation. There's an unattributed Arabic poem I once read called How I Became an Article. It's just two lines. They killed me once. They wore my face many times. I think about those lines a lot and the idea that journalists feed off grief or that we encourage it somehow to get a better story, that we then use that grief to get more clicks on a website and sell more papers. Why do we even cover grief knowing that it'll cause our subjects even more distress? In my experience, it's a complicated issue and it's also one I constantly struggle with. In June 2018, I covered a boat sinking at Lake Toba in North Sumatra. If I told you that a ferry went down with 200 people aboard, how would you feel? Presumably, all of us would feel sympathy about the death toll. But if we're being honest, it's much harder to feel empathy when we're just given flat data. But the victims who perished at Lake Toba were fully formed people. They had names, families, jobs, relationships. And as journalists, it's our job to make people aware of what's happened and get them to understand the depths of the tragedy. It's not just about telling a good story. It's about telling one that makes people feel some type of way. When I got to Lake Toba, it was the day after the boat had gone down in a storm. The port of Tigaras was in complete chaos. 
there were people everywhere police soldiers divers search and rescue teams and the disaster management agency it was also crowded with families of the passengers desperately hoping for news of their loved ones it's always difficult in a situation like that as a journalist in that you don't want to intrude on the private grief of the people around you but at the same time you have a job to do in this case the job was to hear from the families about the victims of the boat sinking i walked around for a while before finding a woman who was sitting in the crisis center on a straw mat with silent tears rolling down her face and i really hesitated about whether to approach her i didn't want to tread on her grief but i also wanted to explain the emotion behind the tragedy that was unfolding to make people realize how bad this really was depending on where you are there are different editors codes of practice but the one used by british newspapers says that in cases involving personal grief or shock inquiries and approaches must be made with sympathy and discretion and publication handled sensitively in media circles there's also a grim saying for journalists who go to the houses of people with deceased relatives to talk about their cases it's known as the death knock the woman at lake toba was called suparmi and her son mohammed apriani sutomo had been on the boat with his fiance the last thing he said to her was i just want to go swimming i work with a local photographer He'd been down at the docks taking pictures of the search and rescue boats while I interviewed Sapami. And towards the end of the interview, he came to get some pictures of me talking to her. So I explained this and I asked if it would be okay for him to take some pictures. Until that point, she'd been quite composed, but she nodded and then she burst into tears. She just said, "Please don't let it be my child." He just said he wanted to go swimming. It was such a horrible moment. Her grief was devastating and I had caused her to relive it all again. But at the same time that sentence, that quote was so powerful. Please don't let it be my child. Are words that any parent would relate to. It really humanized the tragedy of Lake Toba in a single line. Even so I agonized about using it in my report and I agonized about using her photograph. In the end we only had one usable shot of her which ran in the piece which shows her with her hands over her face. Still even now I really struggle with whether I should have included her testimony at all and whether I should have left her alone with her grief that day when the article was published online one comment in particular stood out to me this is such a heartbreaking read and that's what journalists who cover grief are really trying to do Beyond the headlines are journalists working to make stories matter to others. Sometimes this means we intrude on private moments or we tread on the grief of people at their lowest point. In the case of Lake Toba, they found the boat but 
in the end, they were unable to bring it to the surface. Sapami's son will rest at the bottom of the lake, probably forever. In a situation like that, where there is no happy ending, I can only hope that by asking Sapami to share her story, we somehow honoured the memory of her son by giving him his identity back. Not just as a victim of a ferry sinking, but as a young man who enjoyed swimming, as a loving partner to his fiancée, and as a son who was loved by his family. When I was driving home from Lake Toba that night, my editor called to thank me for covering the story. I told him I was just in the right place at the right time, but I really wish I hadn't been. I meant that I wished the boat sinking had never happened, and that Sapami had never had a story to tell me. His reply was simple. Well, yes, he said. That's always the caveat, isn't it? And that was the experience of Aisha Llewellyn at Lake Topa. That's all for this episode. If you'd like more stories from Southeast Asia, be sure to check out newnarrative.com. We publish new content at least twice a week. Next week, we launch our second fortnightly podcast series. It's called Political Agenda, and it's a roundtable discussion of Singaporean current affairs. If you enjoy what we're doing, please support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. Thank you for listening. I'm PJ Thumb and Southeast Asia Dispatches will be back in two weeks. Sampai jumpa! Sampai jumpa!